it's not a technological thing it's more like a fundamental thing in in businesses businesses are all around a set of people collaborating together and yeah. when they can edit some some kind of a shared source of truth mm-hmm. see it at the same time it, it's magical it's kind of a makes them drastically more productive and now you think thinking the time that we are living with the coronavirus right now yeah. that everything is happening online so i would expect yeah. the collaborative uh, the demand for for real time collaboration on web to really start booming right now you are listening to the vaden insider podcast a show aiming to uncover the processes mental models and tools that goes into building successful enterprise business applications We interview business and technical stakeholders involved in the enterprise application development life cycle and share the lessons learned from building business applications that runs the global economy. In this episode, I interview Jonas Lettinen, who is the founder and CEO of Vaadin. He shares the story of the origin of Vaadin back in 2000 and how the company has evolved to become a frontrunner in the world of the web, to experiencing 100x community growth and the mega trends in enterprise business applications that is steering Vaadin's product vision today. We also discuss how enterprises can bridge the Java backend ecosystem and the user interface of their applications, the meaning behind the company's motto of fighting for simplicity, the learnings from being a part of the GWT steering community, and how how he went about building the company's culture that has led to a 10-year club at Vaadin which now boasts of over 10 Vaadiners whose tenureship in the company exceeds 10 years hope you enjoy this episode i would really be curious if we can dial back uh, we are turning 20 years old this summer but let's go back back to 2000 1999 what was going on in the world of the web and where did the idea to start a web framework company you know come into your mind Yeah that's a kind of uh quite a throwback because it's uh, so long time ago um so I was working uh, in a startup called Atuline at that time so that was a small healthcare startup in I guess it was started like 97 or something like that I joined uh, around 98 was running the development team we were building uh, this um uh, maybe we could kind of call it SaaS based system that word didn't exist back then but anyways this kind of a uh, way for a patient all around the world to connect with their doctors do consultations online do prescriptions online so it was way 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 ahead of its time and we are building this self serve system for web and struggling to see what type of stack do, should we be using for building this mm-hmm. so that was the kind of a context where we were and uh, the browsers of the day they were far far away from where browsers are today Yeah. So basically the, the the biggest struggles were how do we really support uh, Netscape and IE was like IE4 at the same time so that was uh, fairly uh, far away from where the where the web uh, platform is is today. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of a beginning of it uh, we were building the system we building with the stack of uh, Linux DP2 uh pearl so we wrote like i guess like 200,000 lines of pearl code if you can imagine it was a horrible monster but we were fairly quick in building that and uh that kind of woke up the whole team i had a team of uh, i guess 10 developers or so uh that we that there must be better ways of building this thing rather mm-hmm. than doing this uh, cgi scripts on top of pearl there must be a better way of doing this mm-hmm. uh so that was the inspiration to start wanting to build those better ways 
Mm-hmm. So that sounds more like the, the, the idea behind the technology, the inspiration to build a product. What about the business side of things? You know, what about, hey, how do we start selling? What do we sell? Uh, we didn't have that at all. So it, it didn't kind of, a, uh, I mean, we, we were basically kids out of the school almost. So I, I, people were coming from the different universities. We had maybe three years of working experience or something like that. So didn't really know anything about business. It was more passion around the, how could we do these tools? How could we build those better? And we didn't even think of uh, selling or sharing those tools. We were more about building tools for ourselves so that we could help companies who are building SaaS-based systems. So that was the original business idea. Let's help the companies who are building SaaS-based systems. Yeah. And if you can imagine that being year 2000, uh, there wasn't that many startups around in 2001 anymore who wanted to have that, that help. Yeah. Yeah. So that was interesting. Uh, that is very interesting. Yeah. And I mean, things are different now because now we have an enterprise solution. And back then it was more of a passion led solving a problem, you know, in the world of the web. Uh, it's it's like just looking at how far we have come and with the whole you know Ajax landscape, GWT and all of that. Uh, I'd be curious. So so the way we, we tell Vaden is, you know, we take care of everything that's happening in the web so that you guys don't have to worry about low-level web technologies and focus on your core domain problems. That'd be a good... Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. So how I see is that we basically connect these two platforms together, one platform being Java and another platform being web. Mm-hmm. And that hasn't actually changed that much. So in the beginning, we really had... We wanted to kind of protect the developer, Java developer, from this messy thing called web. So they really hated spending their time debugging with the old IE versions and why it didn't work. So Mm. instead, what we did, we kind of looked around uh, and uh, what were the kind of uh, ways of building uh, application, continuous application, not just web pages, in a way that would be productive for a developer. And the big inspiration for us uh, uh, were Delphi, that was a great uh, desktop-oriented component-based system back then. Also, even like Visual Basic 6 was uh, mm-hmm. fairly popular at that time. And that was a kind of a inspiration. Could we bring this fairly productive way of building applications to web instead of uh, uh, Java developers uh, trying to fix all the little uh, problems in, in browsers and, and spending 90% of the time fighting with browser incompatibilities, could we kind of keep them productively on the Java side, building the business apps out of ready-made components? And I don't think that it's too far from where we are today. Today, of course, web is a mature platform. It enables you to do amazing things directly, but the basic idea is, is still there, building your business app in a productive fashion out of components and supporting Java backend. Mm-hmm. So I can I can see why Java, you know, this penetration in the enterprise, uh, you know, side. Uh, I'd still be curious uh, why. What's the problem? Why equip Java developers to be able to build UIs? Again, back in the day, I was I don't even know I was like in middle school, so I don't know. Was there was there lack of front end? Are you developers? saying that I'm old? <laughs> yeah. or was it a lack of front end developers, or how was web happening? you know, 15, 20 years ago. And so that made you realize, wait, you know what? Let's enable backend developers to be able to build, you know, front end. 
pages? Uh, PHP was the new hotness on the market. So maybe that kind of defines where the web was at that time. And where uh, what uh, PHP started replacing was CGI scripts that you put in a certain directory and was uh, being run and generating static HTML. So kind of, uh, I don't think that uh, front-end developer as a term did exist back then. It was uh, more like somebody who knew a bit of uh, HTML and could write a script in PHP or Python, or actually Python, not even Python, but uh, Perl at that time. People were even building web-based applications in C. So it, it was fairly different world. Okay, all right. So kind of going along the whole business angle here, when, which year did you actually see, wait a minute, there is a whole business aspect to what we are building and there are customers wanting, not just building custom business application projects, but actually coming up with the whole uh, commercial components, APIs. Yeah, I guess this was, uh, so it's more of a learning story for us on learning about the business rather than just the kind of a product story. Uh, so our kind of first passion was just uh, start building better tools for ourselves because we are struggling with the tools. Then the next realization was that, hey, we have these fairly interesting tools. Uh, how could we give this out to somebody else? Mm -hmm. And that was uh, not business driven that much. We were proud members of, of open source community we really wanted to kind of embrace everything open source. And uh, we were looking at our code base that was called uh, 0.2 back then. So we, the first version being 0.1, then full rewrite for 0.2. And then we were thinking that, hey, yeah, we could open source this. And then we started looking at the code and we were so ashamed of ourselves. It code <laughs> looks, looked horrible. Yeah. So that was kind of inspiration to do a full rewrite again. And we had 0.3 version of Vardin. Uh, and kind of, a, we were fairly happy. Now it started to look good because we knew that everybody else can see our, our code. So we had to put a lot of effort in that, uh, put a lot of effort in API design. Mm -hmm. And just before releasing that, we decided, hey, this 0.3 is kind of a, Sounds like it's instable and immature. How about we kind of turn the number like 3.0 instead? Oracle strategy. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, kind of like all, all the products, like 3.0 was the kind of magic number, whether that's Windows or something. So we, we decided, hey, let's kind of turn 0 0.3 to 3.0 because this is a third version, really. Mm -hmm. And that was, I guess, the first glimpse of any commercial thinking there, seeing that uh, these kind of things matter. But we just pushed that out. We didn't have any business model back then and uh, we had all kinds of dreams of uh, let's have the web version to be completely free and then start building like a mobile adapter on top of that that could start adopting Vardin based UIs to all the mobile devices that were emerging and and what mobile devices back then meant that there was this WAP phone and ah, I think I remember <laughs> so, that. so it's kind of fairly early days then like this MIDP phones that were coming up from Nokia and we being in Finland, we got some early prototypes as well. And it's, it was kind of a, we want to be part of this mobile web trend, but uh, unfortunately we didn't, we never got uh, really the business model of funding working for building these mobile adapters around Vardin. Uh, so what was left was the web version. It was free. It was out there. We were building uh, kind of a, fully service-based business around that. And it took a couple of years before we started kind of getting a lot of inbound 
uh, email around the world that, hey, we are using this Vardin thing. This is, or it was called Millstone back then, but we are using this Vardin thing. And only if you guys could help us build this new component in there, right? or only if you guys could fix that box, or only if you guys could help our team learn this quicker. So we were kind of uh, receiving people uh, requests for helping them. And as we didn't know any better, we basically said, yeah, fine, we'll, we'll help you guys. Uh, we have to charge, uh, was it like 60 bucks an hour or something like that for, for basically uh, somehow compensating our time uh, helping those people. That is funny. My brain is going, those people saying, shut up, take my money and solve my problem. And, and you know, you're like, oh, wait a minute, what do we do? Oh, actually, let's just ask, you know, help them out and in, in return for the services. Uh, so this was back when, 2000. Uh, Seven. I think like two th no no that was earlier uh, maybe two thousand five two thousand six. Okay. Uh, I, I recall if I recall it correctly, we changed the name of the framework to be VOD in two thousand six, and that was a really kind of a big breakthrough year. Mm -hmm. We we kind of uh, I guess we were able to uh, grow the community by hundred x uh, mm -hmm. in 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 next couple of years after that. So it, it was a really big breakthrough for us. It was the first time when uh, Vardin started to look uh, good, started to kind of uh, feel good, and all the kind of quality and documentation were in, in a shape where we could really be proud of that. And it started uh, growing and, and spreading like uh, really quickly. Nice. So the, the world of the web is evolving, and uh, you, know, you, have the, you have the whole rebranding, and there's the, there's the business side of things, support, uh, when did, because uh, the product is evolving, is evolving, there's the open source side of things. When did the the charts and all those, like the real product, the commercial components, those come into existence? Uh, I don't remember the exact year. We It was called first, uh, I guess, Vardin Pro was the, the yeah. first, uh, Vardin Pro account was the kind of first uh, uh, offering. So it's not too far away from Vardin uh, Pro subscription that we have today. Mm -hmm. And then we started adding different type of components there. Charting was one of the first ones, and uh, there were others as, as well. Uh, but that was, uh, for us commercially, it, it was a really tiny thing in the beginning. So it was just first uh, purpose licenses for that, and then develop oh, a yeah. subscription. And uh, because the business around the consul consulting had grew, grown to kind of decent size already. This was like uh, less than 1% of our revenue. So it, yeah. it was treated like a hobby inside the company. <laughs> it's good to have this hobby, but it doesn't generate any revenues. So yeah. it took uh, quite a while until we started actually seeing that as a business. And I guess like five years ago, we, we started to be fairly confident, hey, this is actually the, the business and started growing that and took uh, an around investment in the company as well to be able to fund this uh, transition to be product-based company. Right. Yeah. And I mean, my, my curiosity is coming because I have talked to community folks uh, and business stakeholders who wonder, hey, you guys are open source. Yeah, my developers use it. Don't, don't waste my time. And they don't know there's a whole company behind it and with, you know, solutions, products and services. So uh, we, have, we have some work to do, do there, but uh, that's, uh, that's very interesting. Um, so from a branding perspective, uh, I've had people ask me, hey, what the heck is Fight for Simplicity? And I know we had a reindeer logo in the landing page, but now we are focusing on progressive web app, which we'll get to later. Uh, what, what, what is Fight for Simplicity in the world of web? 
Yeah, for us, uh, the simplicity has been the kind of foundation of the whole company. So in the beginning, it was let's uh, abstract away from this messy web and make it simple and uh, for the Java developer. So that was the simplicity in the beginning of it. And I guess in the most pure form, that was clean APIs, uh, easy development process, uh, abstracting away from all the messy things. So that was the foundation. Uh, but I don't think that it was too much later when we realized that actually uh, as strong story around simplicity is the end user usability. So if some application is simple for the end user, they start building the relationship with the application. And so we kind of started promoting simplicity both for the developers and for the end users. And we still didn't kind of use that as our slogan or motto or anything like that. And then um, some years back, we started thinking, hey, maybe we should, maybe we should kind of have a clear motto for something that people can relate also outside of Vardin. And we were thinking about uh, uh, something around the simplicity. Simplicity is great. So kind of uh, all kind of uh, really meh things around it. And, and then we kind of understood that uh, simplicity is, is super hard. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's not just like uh, just reducing, on, reducing the complexity until you get to the bare essence of things, but it also like in organizations that our customers represent, these are fairly big companies. And in order to build something simple, you have to have so many stakeholders around the mm-hmm. house in there. You have to have people really kind of pushing for simplicity. And then you kind of click that, hey, this is actually, it, it's a real fight for everybody being part of that. So mm-hmm. us as a framework uh, creator, we have to really fight to for the simplicity to make those APIs simple. But for our customers, they they need inspiration to be in those meetings and say that, hey, we, we don't want to put these marketing thingies all around the application. We want to make it simple for the end user. And it's a real struggle. It's quite often like a short-term business gain against a long-term um, Broad traction. So we want to kind of uh, uh, start uh, promoting this model of fight for simplicity. So mm-hmm. not just at Vardin, but I hope that uh, all the ecosystem around Vardin, they start this fight in their organization that, hey, shit, we have to do this way more simple to be able to gain the trust and the love of those end users. Yeah, I mean, in, in the development phase, it'll be like, yeah, I have to wait for my, you know, front-end developer to send me, give me access, and then I'll add the UI logic, and then, you know, we'll, we'll push it to production. And uh, it's hard to make sim- things simple, and uh, the, the real hardcore Java developers who have been with Vaadin kind of, like, really get it. They don't have to worry about, you know, the low-level uh, web technologies to be able to build modern user interface. Um, there's this whole... Uh, design aspect of simplicity. Uh, the UX, UX UI didn't exist until six or seven years ago. When did Vardin kind of start integrating, uh, you know, UX UI driven development model into our APIs into, you know, I'm referring to our theming, like the, the Valo theming came out in V6 or seven. And so the quality of design UX UI with, with Vardin has been there since the beginning of the industry or, or the whole design as a field in itself, I'd be curious, uh, when did that start coming into our own product, uh, our platform? I think design is way uh, older than that uh, as as a concept. So good UX design that has been around for decades and uh, 
amazing companies have been growing out of that. Like uh, that I think Apple, and... Apple is probably one one kind of a big example where by just thinking how this uh, design arts how they uh, connect with technology, how this crossroad is really powerful mm. and really by making this uh, computer so much simpler for the end user, how much uh, yeah. that impacts the whole experience. So I, I think uh, uh, we should kind of uh, uh, say that uh, design is a new thing mm. where I, I think, uh, but it took a long while for, for the whole industry to understand that uh, great user experience is really a competitive advantage. Yeah. So it was like uh, companies like uh, Uber or Apple or Nike, or there are so many kind of uh, big companies who have grown quickly out of a great user experience, mm -hmm. simplifying something. You can get a car on your door by just pressing one button. So, it's so yeah. the simplicity is so powerful. Uh, and I think it's still kind of a, not fully understood around the industries, all the industries that this simplicity of the user experience that really will be the place where the competition is won. I, I mean, it might be that, let's say banking understand it right now. Uh, uh, the banks will be winning over the competition by having the greatest online user, yes. user experience. Yeah. But there is like uh, so many industries where they don't really get realized that the user experience will be the way to win over the competition. Mm -hmm. And this is uh, partly kind of connected for this uh, uh, B2C2B trend where you don't sell top-down anymore to this big corporation. Instead, you uh, make product available and people start adopting that all around the corporation. So in a way, the user visibility matters way more than, mm -hmm. um, let's say, good uh, lunches around the golf course for top-down sales well that that is already yeah the the bottoms-up approach is like this companies like you know all the api companies and it is the way because developers should have so much power to bring on a new technology and um going top down it's, it's a long way to win over it but i, I missed your original question. the original question was uh, when Warden started kind of uh connect to this trend mm -hmm. um i, I think uh in the beginning, our notion of that, we were developers and kind of developer mindset, uh, having only developer mindset in the company. So the, the first uh, connection to, to usability, that was a bit naive, mostly around look and feel. Mm -hmm. And uh, beginning from the very first version of Warden, uh, I, I kind of consider 3.0 to be that first version, we had multiple themes. We had a full the theming system with... Uh, different type of themes customers could build different look and feel for the applications and those they were kind of a design systems although uh, they were implemented in xslt so uh, in a way really old technology but it was the the, the new new hotness of, of the 2003 mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so we were kind of there from the very very early days and I think we started then realizing a bit later, just a few years later on, that the actual power that Vardy can bring is the component set. That when we really refine the, the, the components, make sure that they have all the right uh, capabilities for accessibility, that the user interactions are smooth, mm -hmm. uh, that they look consistent across all the devices, they work well with touch, they look consistent in, in different views of the application, even when you theme it. Uh, that, that's the real 
powerful thing. It wasn't called design systems back then. We were calling it theming and high quality components, but that was, I, I think, what really started lifting us up maybe around the Vardin 6, uh, around Vardin, uh, I think it was 2006 or mm. so. I think, yeah, the, the consistency part is really key point that you have made because even today, when, we, when I talk to, you know, man, engineering managers or stakeholders, when I say design, they're like, yeah, we have the styling taken care of. Whereas design system, it's a process. I was talking to Rolf this morning and he's like, imagine having your own business custom components and you have your single source of truth for developers and designers to not have to go search, hey, what is this component's name or, you know, uh, I think that's the business advantage that teams can have by having a design system. Um, it's also about empowering those developers. So um, I, I guess everybody knows this notion of design by developers, meaning that looks horrible, feels horrible. So uh, <laughs> and, and then, then they kind of start addressing the problem that, hey, let's hire this designer who kind of uh, puts lipstick, lipstick on the pig and that doesn't work <laughs> either. So yeah. how do you do this when... Uh, actual designing of the user interface that's that's an iterative process and it takes a while so meaning it's expensive and then this one single poor designer guy gets to be the bottleneck or the whole company so how do we kind of solve this and i think uh, the industry at, at large they kind of came to conclusion that it's all about design systems building this way to document and teach developers and designers around the organization on the uh, agreed best practices, agreed standards for how things look, how they should behave, how these similar ways of working and logic in, in the UI should be used consistently across the whole uh, application and maybe across multiple applications okay. within the same company. So mm. that's really powerful concept. And I think it will be, if uh, it was first adopted by kind of a big companies like IBM and Apple and Google and so forth, and then going to the uh, place where all the unicorns had their own design systems. Mm -hmm. And nowadays, I don't think that there are too many uh, startups even can live without be having a design system. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I, I guess kind of a price of a design system or kind of cost of building design system that has been going drastically down at the same time. Let's say I'm a Java developer. I'm coming from you know one of those server-side Java technology how would you, what would you tell me to look into to evaluate Vardin if it can actually solve my problems? Um, I guess there are a couple of things. Uh, so first of, uh, how is the component set uh, working for you? And uh, is, is the components that Vardin have, are they covering the use cases that you have? Um, and, and there is a big gap to front-end ecosystem where there is so much of the notion that, hey, let's write our own components from scratch for each project. Mm -hmm. Of course, there are really good, powerful component sets in there as well. But the Vardin's philosophy is quite different from that. We try to build really high quality uh, contained components that are reusable across the applications. And that way make it easier for, for you to build and compose out of those components. So maybe the first thing to take a look at is the component set. Uh, you mentioned Polymer and GWT, these are not too relevant for us anyway. We kind of uh, migrated out of GWT a long time ago, started rewriting the whole thing uh, with this new upcoming uh, uh, standard called Web Components. Mm 
Mm-hmm. We completed that around two years back, uh, this transition. And uh, so basically Vardin is built on standard uh, component set. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's uh, another question to ask. Do you want to build on React or do you want to build on standard? So that, those are basically the options nowadays, either React components or standard web components. Um, so the second kind of a thing to look at is uh, uh, you obviously have Java background, uh, maybe a lot of Java code as well in your company and your project. Uh, how do you leverage that? How do you kind of bridge the gap between Java and that uh, user interface? And uh, with Vardin, we have uh, basically lived out of this uh, bridging between the two platforms for, I guess, since foundation. Uh, and uh, the Vardin up to Vardin 14, the primary way of, of bridging between the platforms is that you write the UI in Java and Vardin renders that in web components for you. So that's a kind of a, a really comfortable way for a Java-centric uh, team who wants to stay in uh, high security uh, environment, really strongly tied the Java environment with access to all the backend resources. Uh, and it's actually a really, really productive way of building application. What we are adding now uh, in Vardin 15 and beyond, uh, side by side with this, is also a way for building your web apps, uh, web app views in TypeScript, and bind those really in a good way to, to the backend uh, Java. So the, in, in backend Java, you can, you can just annotate your function that, hey, I want to have this available for our views and Vardin automatically generates you a TypeScript-based uh, facade for accessing that, that data from the front end. And you're using exactly the same web components, both on Java and TypeScript. So it's up to your team which uh, way of uh, building views you will choose. Mm-hmm. And of course, you can mix and match those as, as well. So the second question for Java developers is that, do, does this stack really support me as a Java developer, can I leverage my skills, my code base, or is it like, hey, I'm on your on my own writing REST API somehow over here? Yeah, yeah. Okay, there's there's couple two really good questions. The first one is uh, look at the directory, all the components for business web application that we have. Does that align with their application use cases requirements? And then ask ask yourself as a developer, do you want to build on web standards or you know React? Web standards obviously helps because you don't have to worry about different browsers and that's where the web is headed. And then the second, second one is uh, how, how, how can we maximize the reuse of our existing Java investment, which includes developers, backend you know, logic, and then, yeah, not have to learn something totally new. Uh, so type safety, I, I guess that's Valin's angle with TypeScript to allow full client to server type safety, which makes debugging easier versus you know, trying to figure out where the error in the code is when you're doing it JavaScript way. Did I get the type safety thing right? Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, so TypeScript as a language, that's pretty much nowadays the, the choice of the whole industry. So everybody writing on the front end, whether you're using React or Angular or whatever, mm-hmm. people start to write everything in TypeScript. And there is a, it's kind of fun to see this uh, uh, because that has been one of the strengths uh, of Java and why people wanted to write things in Java because there is uh, the compiler takes so much care uh, of you no, no noting of any um, typecast errors 
on the compile and time. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, so much more safe environment. So that basically has been the same uh, value prop brought on the front-end world in, in form of TypeScript. So it's just a good way of doing that. One thing I want to mention around uh, React and, and web components, uh, uh, the, the kind of, uh, when you think of the choice, should I write in React or in web components, uh, one is a, a really popular framework with amazing ecosystem around it. And people uh, can trust on that to be there for a long time because of that ecosystem, but it also evolving. So this, it, it's uh, always new version coming out and it, it kind of improves over the time. So it changes over the time as well. While as uh, web components, they are based on a standard that is part of the HTML5 and implemented by the, all the browsers today. Mm-hmm. So that basically means that this foundation is solid for years to come and browsers are optimizing to make this foundation yeah. really quick and fast. So for example, going under the, under the hood, uh, React has this virtual DOM implementation, basically replicating, replicating the whole DOM. Mm-hmm. And that was a great way of building a framework like React for uh, really binding in data sources <laughs> in a world where this, there was no native support for that in browsers. Mm-hmm. And now with web components, the browsers actually can handle a lot of that oh. by themselves natively. So it ends up being much faster than in React. Mm-hmm. Uh, so our bet about it was that, hey, which direction should we go? And we decided that let's go with the standards. Those are stable for a long time, mm-hmm. especially when we already kind of uh, did see what happens if we take the, the greatest framework of the time, Google Web Toolkit, mm-hmm. and build the component set on top of that. And then world changes. So instead, yeah. let's try to be uh, building on, on the standard. Uh, there's a couple of really interesting nuggets here. First, when, uh, when I hear the, the standards approach for long term, um, I know the CIO and the CFOs go, wait a minute, this would actually help us lower the total cost of ownership because you don't have to keep jumping with one release after another. And in fact, I mean, the director of engineer at Facebook, even he said, we built Facebook to solve Facebook problems. If, you know, and he, I think I can quote him where I found him, 98% of the companies out there are not building Facebook. And I think that's the, the, the biases developers have. Hey, Facebook builds React, it's gotta be great. And it's great you know, great framework. And I think that's the challenge here. How do we um, educate or uh, collectively in the web, find the right solution or tool for the problem our business needs to solve. And uh, so that's what you're saying. Web standards is a great choice because, you know, you're betting on standards and uh, yeah, you can kind of like, uh, you, you can minimize, minimize the development costs and, and really ensure that your application's uh, shelf life is longer without... Yeah, I mean, you, you know, that last thing in the enterprise you want to do is rewriting your application every few exactly. years. Exactly. So that, yeah. That's kind of a super expensive. So maybe that's not something to, that where you want to spend your time. Yeah, unless um, you fear Google because you decide to deprecate every five years anyways. <laughs> no, I mean, they have good reasons for that. And... Uh, if you ask a development team uh, what would be the most fun way of uh, writing your next application, it's always choose something that they haven't been using before just because then you have a learning experience. But yeah. that's not maybe the way how you want to yeah, really. kind of manage a business application yeah. either. And I don't want to kind of, uh, uh, kind of dismiss uh, React at all. I, I think it's a brilliant framework. Mm-hmm. And uh, while uh, 
the, it, it's, it has came out of Facebook and solving that problem well. It has turned out that it can solve many problems really in a great way. Mm -hmm. uh, it's more kind of important to kind of uh, make sure that your team chooses uh, the, the whole stack in a way that is uh, meaningful for you, not because they are trendy. I mean, there are so many uh, phases in the history of software development where people start following the trends mm -hmm, and start actually. applying, let's say, design patterns that are trendy at the time without understanding why are they yeah. applied. Because everybody's doing that, because this is the best practice. And then they might uh, double the, the effort that they're having in their application without any benefit by yeah. trying to make their application scale to Facebook scale mm -hmm. without uh, actually ever needing to serve anything like that. So it's uh, I guess in, in that moment, in that place, the architect probably could should ask, like, you know, what is the what is the right thing for me, and not because everybody else is doing, because uh, hype cycle is definitely a, a common thing applicable in the framework world. Uh, you you referred to GWT, and uh, you know, Vadin was you know part of the GWT steering committee, so we have gotten a lot of you know curiosity on co folks coming from GWT and. Nothing's happening, you know, and they want to leverage their existing expertise and, and you know, investment. And Valin kind of stands as a good uh, choice for migration for them. Uh, could you walk us, like, you know, briefly, what, what was our learning on GWT? And while well, now we have invested in, you know, we are going betting on web standards. What did we get out? What did we learn from that experience, uh, both from a product development perspective and being in, you know, in the steering committee? Yeah, I, I think uh, kind of going back to the choice when we decided uh, uh, to to start using GWT, um, that was time when we had one of the first, it was called Ajax-based uh, front-ends in, in, in Varin. And uh, we were super proud of the components that we built. We were probably the first components to be fully mobile ready because we happened to have access to mobile devices that, devices that had the first working web browsers back then. And uh, so we kind of faced the, the, the challenge that how do we make this front-end component set of Varin extendable by customers? Mm -hmm. This far, we, we always uh, uh, were building all the components by ourselves and our front-end code base was a mess. It was hard to kind of extend. It looked really good for the end users, but it was hard for anybody external to really work on that. So we had uh, three choices ahead of us. Either we adopt, uh, either we kind of uh, rewrite our own code base, uh, create, build a kind of a great front-end component set, or we adopt one of the existing ones. And I, if I recall correctly, we have like Tibco, uh, Tibco GI was one of the choices, Dojo was another choice, and uh, what was called Google Web Toolkit back in the days, that was the third choice and, and it was a super hard decision to inst to ditch this uh, component set that we have built. We were super proud of start from scratch building on top of the Google web toolkit, but it was the right choice. It was, uh, uh, there was nothing standardized back then on the market. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a brilliant piece of engineering. We got, got to know the Google web toolkit team, some of the smartest engineers I have ever met. And uh, I, I think, that really gave us the opportunity to stand on the shoulder of a, of a giant, this team who built this uh, compiler, compiling Java to JavaScript. And that really accelerated our development a lot. And also 
allowed uh, our customers to build their own components. So kind of, I think the starting point was great. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now I'm that what happened then is, is I'm maybe uh, guessing here. So nothing official. I, ha- I haven't heard anything kind of saying anything uh, aloud because it's a bit sensitive. But yeah. uh, what happened was that uh, Google had built uh, uh, Android, Oracle had acquired Java, and then Oracle wanted to get uh, their share of the Android pie. So uh, what okay. happened is, okay. is that they sued Oracle for implementing Java API. So, so Oracle sued, sued Google sued. for implementing, in, implementing Java APIs. And that was a huge business distraction at Google. And um, at that time, they had two different products where they implemented Java APIs. Another one was Google Web Toolkit. So uh, I don't know if these are connected, but suddenly at the same time, Google wanted to distance themselves from the Google Web Toolkit. They changed the name to be GWT instead of uh, Google Web Toolkit. They uh, basically pushed the, the Web Toolkit out of the Google uh, steering and uh, invited a couple of companies. So it was uh, Red Hat and Shenzhen, Vardin, ArcB, so maybe somebody else as well, mm-hmm. uh, together with Google to take uh, leadership of, of the GWT. And I think that was a really noble cause for, cause for protecting Google Web Toolkit and uh, kind of getting the community involved. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't think that it really worked that well in, in that sense that uh, we, everybody else kind of failed to be become uh, that significant contributor in the framework. The Google team was so so good uh, building contributions to Google Web Toolkit that they pretty much did all the work. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was some contribution from Vardin, uh, from uh, Red Hat, from ArcBees and so forth that really helped, but... Uh, I think the the biggest contribution was more on the marketing side, like a new branding conference around that, uh, kind of a trying to uh, revitalize the, the community around Google Web Toolkit. Mm-hmm. But I mean, as any open source product uh, or any open source project, they need a really strong leadership that is visibly speaking for the for the open source product right. and uh, really driving it forward with a clear agenda also on, on how the project is, is funded. And uh, now it was not clear at all how this was funded. So mm-hmm. in a way, most of the development came out of the Google's internal budget for for actual code contributions in there. So mm-hmm. with, with that background, I, I think GWT is still a really brilliant piece of engineering, but it hasn't been progressing too much in the in the past years yeah, um, yeah maybe kind of connecting to that so at the same time what happened was that uh, uh, out of the team at google uh, inside uh, chrome they came up with either web components mm-hmm. and uh, we heard that early on and i was scared uh, like like no before so it was google inventing the idea of uh, making component-based uis uh, in web a standard. So mm-hmm. ugh, that, that was being our kind of a, a way to, to add value to the community, make it uh, easy to build UIs out of components. And now Google is driving effort to standardize that. So it, it was from my point of view that either we're going to be embracing this or we, it, we are going to be dying out of this. 
and we took the really hard decision to, to embrace that and started rewriting whole VAR in front end five years back for, for web components. So, which touched on the technology. Now, Vardin is also a company, which is also called Vardin. Uh, I personally love our you know, core values and it's, it's not something you just put on the website. It's actually, you know, people live here. Uh, for those of you who are listening, we have a 10-year club where people have been in Vardin for more than 10 years. And I can, do you have, do you know off the back of your head how many people have been here for more than 10 years? Oh, I don't have the number from top of my head, but it uh, yeah. must be over 10 <laughs> there you go. So how did you go about, uh, and as a founder, as a leader, how did you go about building a company culture? And I'm not, not even sure if company culture was a thing 20 years ago or, you know, many. I mean, I, I guess there is always a company culture, it's whether you are aware of that or not, whether you that are trying true. to build that or not. That is true. So for us, uh, as I said, we not being that uh, experience in building companies, um, we didn't really think about it. It was more like, uh, uh, we were developers. We wanted to kind of uh, think like developers, uh, and um, even when it was didn't make too much sense, we we were doing things in a developer type of way, including sales. And uh, so, for example, we had a long time standing rule that everybody in sales should be able to code, do live coding in demos. So it's a uh, <laughs> that that was interesting. Then the team kind of overrode me and said that, "Hey, Jonas, now now it's not working." So. Uh, <laughs> But nevertheless, it's a, a, the, the kind of value foundation that came from uh, like a Finnish equal culture that where we were based in, in Finland, uh, Soviet back then. And Finland has a long-standing tradition from, for equality. Uh, so in, in a way that it's uh, everything and everybody should be equal. And that started kind of a building that... that uh, the kind of a culture where everything is equal, we everything is transparent, every, everybody's approachable. And that was a really solid foundation for, for the culture. And maybe a bit later on, we started kind of uh, crystallizing that, hey, we are super passionate about being, uh, trying to kind of simplify everything. So maybe that should be our value as well. And uh, we are super passionate about the user experience. Maybe design. this design should be our value as well. And being like arrogant Finnish engineers, we were kind of uh, ripping the mantra that, hey, this thing is bullshit. So <laughs> we actually, we had a, as a value, uh, no bullshit in the beginning. And then we thought, hey, this is not politically correct and actually doesn't capture it. So we kind of reformulate that as uh, no fluff. And I guess even better formulation nowadays should be like, keep it real. So no sugarcoating anything, that. but it's really kind of a, trying to um, remove all the marketing mumbo jumbo from things and just uh, speak with their own uh, things about uh, how they really are. I love it. Yeah. So let, let's do this. Uh, we are, uh, you know, 20 year anniversary is coming this summer. What are you excited about in the world of the web and where Vaden is headed both as with our product vision and as a company? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there are a couple of trends that are super exciting. First one, uh, proxy web applications. I really love the concept. So the the kind of uh, gap between web page and uh, native application, that is completely going away. Uh, and for the large part, it already has been going away. I, I think this will really transform the whole notion of uh, 
building any native applications for business purposes. There, there shouldn't be any need to build any native applications for any business purposes anymore. Yeah. I, I recognize that like gaming and that there are kind of a, a places where, where there are use cases outside of web, but this kind of supercharges the whole web platform so much that it's good place to be uh, being a, a develop, web developer who is building apps in, in web and uh, that the basic fundamental uh, value proposition of Java that write it once, run it anywhere, that really comes across with the project yeah. web apps. Yeah. Uh, so that's kind of one thing. Uh, it's interesting to see how far people take these project web apps uh, with type of devices they go. Today, they basically run on every mobile device, every Tablets. laptop already, but do they go to smartwatches? Do they go to AR? Uh, VR classes and so forth. Uh, interested to see where, where that goes. I want to touch a little bit uh, here on PWS. So there is the, the Android, there's the iOS, there's the web, there's the desktop platform. So Progressive Web Apps allows you to write you know, one piece of one code base and, and run it across all your different devices. So would it be fair to say that companies then don't have to have this three to four code bases that they're maintaining and actually just have one PWN and you're literally cutting your cost. I don't know. Absolutely. Third, but... So in a way, and, and I, I guess many companies are living in this world already. They have this web-based code base and they, they go and wrap it with uh, Cordova or something for different devices. But uh, even with that, you have to manage all those app stores and have to package mm -hmm. that code. And, and the whole process is so so much uh, extra hassle for, for the developer. Uh, so if, if instead you are able to just write this uh, web app and have that working uh, perfectly on all the different uh, platforms, mm -hmm. behaving like a native application, oh. having access to hardware, uh, hardware capabilities in there, that would be so much simpler. Um, I guess uh, the only place where it, it starts kind of a, I mean, I'm thinking from the kind of business to business point of view most, most yeah. of the time where that might kind of uh, need a different perspective is that when you use app stores as, as you monetization platform, if you are selling to consumer yeah. or having like a subscriptions uh, facilitated by Apple app store or whatnot. So uh, mm -hmm. that's maybe a different place. But when you think of from the business to business perspective, uh, there are other ways of charging uh, oh, right. yeah. applications Good. and over there kind of little benefits from the app stores. Yeah. I mean, it kind of makes sense if you're in the B2B world and you already have a customer, why do you want your customers and users to go to the app store to download when you can say, hey, here's the link, go put it on your web browser and it will install and act like a native app, right? PWA. Yeah. No, I mean, the, I think the classic story I've been always telling is that uh, uh, think about LinkedIn when you meet somebody in a conference and send them uh, kind of a, add them as a connection with LinkedIn. What happens is that LinkedIn sends the, the other guy an email and then you click on the email link and then you start maybe downloading the LinkedIn application, log in and so forth. So there are so many conversion steps that it's a hassle instead of you be sending uh an e email with the web link, you click the link and you are in the app already. Oh, so right. no installation, no friction whatsoever for that. Of course, LinkedIn happens to be installed in your phone probably already, yeah. but uh, uh, think of you being the next LinkedIn. How do you kind of distribute the application to 
around do you really want people to go through the hassle of going to app store downloading installing and whatnot or is it better that they just click the link and they are there already so it's uh that is actually really interesting and i think there is there are data out there like what 60% are apps people don't even touch after they install or something like that the you know app usage and uh i'm doing the math how many hours it will save by eliminating the steps which is good design you know when you make it easier for the use and users to get to the end results not having them to click 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 uh, yeah. There's actually an interesting trend now when you mention about apps not being used at the phone. Uh, more and more people, they start sharing that, hey, how few apps they have on their phone. Just for the, uh, they don't want to have apps like TikTok that might do more on your phone that you really want them to do. So in, in a way, people start sharing that I'm only using on my iPhone the apps that ship with Apple and then I have three other apps and everything else is done on a web browser. So in that kind of world, it's harder and harder to win over the trust of somebody going and installing your application yeah. and uh, then pondering what does it do on my phone? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, like don't even have the Facebook app installed. They, you know, had to, yeah, decided to uninstall it. Interesting thing when I came across progressive web app, so Instagram, you know, very addictive, uh, great, great design, great product. Their PWA doesn't have the same feature parity compared to their native app. And uh, I don't know if it's intentional or what it is, but uh, I have that installed in my phone. <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess it's uh, always the, I mean, this is one of the hassles when you are building multiple code bases. You'll probably have, then have one team per code base. Yeah. And then you end up having this extra hassle of coordinating between the teams, which features do we do and which, which order. And it's always that some teams go and implement certain features first. Mm-hmm. And the other teams have other priorities, or it might be harder to do on some other platform. So there is never a feature parity, even if you kind of invest a lot in, in there. Yes. So it's so much easier if you just have the one code base and one team, or at least then you might have those three teams, but they're building three different features in parallel. So you end up having way more velocity in your application development. Mm-hmm. So progressive web app, what else is happening in the web? Um, so second thing that I think is, really impactful is design systems. So that we actually discussed already, but uh, I I think we cannot really uh, overestimate the impact that it has for business applications, Uh, not only from a kind of technical perspective and how the workflow perspective, but those companies who don't have a design system, they start look really outdated on their end user's point of view. How can this company have different styling on different places? How can they work? How the kind of user experience can be this bad in, in, in this part of the application while us, yeah. they, they are kind of trained by the amazing user experiences built by company like Airbnb and Lyft and Apple and so forth that, that they start to expect this high consistency, high user high kind of a great user experience uh, from all the applications. Mm-hmm. And if you are an uh, enterprise building insurance uh, yeah. applications and you have probably 100 times more views in your application compared to Airbnb yeah. and one fraction 
collection of the resources to do that. How do you really kind of manage with that? So how do you really make it as compelling, as consistent as Airbnb is making their applications? Yeah. I think you have to have a kind of design system that solves that problem. And, and what's very interesting is uh, as, uh, I mean, every business at the end of the day is, you know, you have end users, consumers, and we are being influenced by Airbnb, Uber, with such like UX, you know, design. And then when we see, come across this new or, or any insurance company, and if the, the web app looks crappy, you slowly stop trusting that. That's an effect. At least that's how it happens for me. And uh, so one kind of argument to that is when you're in B2B, like the employers are like, yeah, employees are like, I have to use it even though it looks crappy. I can't do it. This is like a real developer who have told me that how would you go about, um, you know, maybe selling to the business side or just kind of like educating them. Hey, this is what's happening and this is where you are missing out. So don't ignore design system. This is how it can help you. How would you go about educating them on that? Really good question. I don't really know. I guess uh, some things that pop to my mind is, is try to educate about where the competition is, mm. uh, what is a design system, maybe uh, have somebody external help you. It could be like a design agency could come in and help uh, telling what is a design system. Or if that might be a team using Vardin today, our design team could pop in for a meeting with uh, yeah. management. Just kind of... Uh, educate a bit about what, what is possible and where the world is going over there. Yeah. Uh, I think it would be really bad for companies to really miss out on design systems. Uh, as you said, it's uh, uh, the, the kind of uh, quality of the user experience and design that starts to be the currency, uh, how you kind of prove your trust to your products uh, to your users. They don't really see how much uh, sophisticated things you have under the under the hood in your application. Yeah. It's more like what's, how it shows to be on, on the front. Yeah. And I mean, good thing. Uh, yeah. How does it look and feel? And a uh, good thing on design system. I actually have Rolf on the calendar for the design system interview already. Okay. So, <laughs> so that's, that's good. Um, so let, what, what else? What else? I mean, I know we have, uh, I know internally we have the cloud IDE. Where does that fit in with what's happening in the web? Um, so my kind of take on, on cloud ID is that the same thing will happen in development eventually that ha has been happening both on, on, um, like, uh, productivity suites. So like Google docs showed that you can really write documents and do spreadsheets online and then started happening in design. I think Figma is really eating the whole market by having such an amazing user experience mm -hmm. in, inside the web browser. And the same thing starts to happen increasingly on, on coding as, as well. Uh, VS Code is a brilliant environment. Microsoft is bringing that to, to cloud. Uh, so increasingly development tools are going to cloud as, as well. Mm -hmm. uh, when exactly the, the kind of major shift happens, people ditching their uh, local, local IDEs and jumping over to doing everything in cloud, I don't know. But we, we want to be part of that trend, want to enable companies building that trend but uh, I wouldn't call that the mega trend yet. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think the third trend that I would like to mention instead of that is, is uh, real-time collaboration. Mm -hmm. This is something that is really end-user centric, uh, where the, the companies I mentioned, uh, uh, like Google Docs first, so that productivity can be a collaborative experience, the experience where a team 
edits a document at the same time. And Figma did the same thing, disrupting the whole design market by having uh, access for multiple people on the same document at the same yeah. time. Yeah. And this is kind of really, it's not a technological thing. It's more like a fundamental thing in, in businesses. Businesses are all around a set of people collaborating together. And yeah. when they can edit some, some kind of a shared source of truth, see mm -hmm. it at the same time, it, it's magical. It's kind of a, makes them drastically more productive. Right. And now you think, thinking the time that we are living with the coronavirus right now, yeah. uh, everything is happening online. I so know, I would yeah. expect the collaborative, uh, the demand for, for real-time collaboration on web to really start booming right now. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting what happens around that. And at Vardin, what I've been doing for many years now, we have been having this push connection in Vardin mm -hmm. full stack framework that allows you to uh, quite easily push changes across different users. But we'd like to kind of build uh, uh, something more around this, uh, something where it makes it super simple for people to, to share uh, real-time edited documents. Mm -hmm. And I, I think the, the the only thing that is holding back collaborative uh, real-time uh, real collaboration in, in web is that it's freaking hard to build right now. Mm -hmm. So Figma team has invested a ton of time building their experience. I, I'm sure that the Google team has had a lot of struggles building their office suite as well. So for this, let's say, let's use this insurance company as an example for them to be building their UIs to be collaborative uh, across their user base, I think that will be a challenge for them. It's, so we, we try to make it easier in, in, in the future for, for companies like that. Mm -hmm. And I mean, uh, I would like to add on that is Gartner now even has a quadrant for workforce collaboration, something along those lines, and uh, it's predicting the, the whole market to grow up to $4 billion. That's, that's like lots of zeros there. Anyways, <laughs> all righty. Um, Let's do this. Let's do some like uh, quick rapid fire. You up for it? All right. All right. Um, I work in tech. Uh, I don't know anything about Vaadin. Give me your elevator pitch. What is Vaadin? That's a really worrying. Uh, you're working <laughs> at Vaadin, but. <laughs> yeah. um. So uh, Vaadin is a full stack framework for building web apps in Java allowing a team who is having a Java backend to be super productive building an awesome web experience with, with Vardin framework. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Um, next question is, how do you pronounce the name of the company? Vardin. Actually, okay. there is a good story about that. that. When we were kind of branding the, the company, the first we kind of changed the name of the product and then the company. I was really uh, doubtful if people can pronounce Vardin. So I was traveling in London, so I popped in a pub and uh, wrote Vard into a piece of paper, went around the pub asking people, how would you pronounce this? And there was like uh, one guy from India, a lot of locals uh, with British accents, some Amer Americans in that pub, and everybody was able to pronounce that in the same way, Vardin. I said, holy shit, this is really working out. It has never worked like that after that. So after we kind of decided, it has been everything between Vadin and, and whatnot. So Vadin, Vadin, I have had one yeah. guy say Vader, but that, so that was an outlying data point. But good to hear that you actually did a data-driven experiment. So that, that's good. Yeah, to yeah, and that failed. So in a way, that uh, experiment didn't really tell the truth. But 
I, I think it's uh, totally okay to, to have those different pronunciations. And that's a wrap up for this episode. If you're interested to be a guest in the show or you have topics you would like to learn more about related to enterprise application development, find us at vadin.com slash podcast. Thank you.